The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34. The word of God speaks to us like this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Hey guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's super fun being back with you guys. I've missed you a ton, and uh, I'm really thankful to be here. I bring loving greetings from our downtown congregation and our other congregations, and I'm just really grateful, really thankful that your elders allow me, are allowing me to preach today. So if you've got a Bible, start finding Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 28 through 34, and uh, I'm going to pray for you and ask you to pray for me, and we're going to do some work. So Father, thank you so much for your kindness, your mercy, and your grace today. Thank you that you promised that your word would be living and active, that it would shape us, form us, chasten us, and encourage us. And uh, Father, I just want to ask that in the midst of a world that has darkness and chaos and confusion, and in the midst of our own lives with darkness, chaos, and confusion, I pray that that picture in Genesis chapter 1 where your spirit hovered over the earth that was formless and void, and your spirit brought order and beauty and life, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us through your spirit and your word. Pray that you would form us and shape us and encourage us. And uh, we just invite you to do all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, so we're going to do something kind of weird today. I have two sermons for the price of one, free 99. Uh, I want to take a second and I want to talk about the scribe. And then I want to talk about the meat of our text. Because the scribe here is not the main point of the text, but he is in some ways kind of like the patron saint of maturity in an anxious world. And this scribe is a really beautiful picture of what it would look like for us to actually grow into the kind of maturity that the world around us needs. We live in this moment where immaturity is rampant, both in the church and outside of the church. People are stunted emotionally. We're stunted relationally. We're stunted vocationally. And one of the ways that Jesus calls us to be salt and light in the world is not just by doing good things, although praise be to God, we should do good things. We should love neighbors. We should care for the poor. We should befriend people that don't know Jesus. But one of the things that God calls us to do as we're on mission in the world is to actually connect the fact that spiritual maturity and emotional slash relational maturity are not at odds with each other. And in this particular moment where people are so stressed out and so combative and so defensive and so prone to shifting blame and being outraged at other people and pointing fingers, one of the things that we've got to grow in if we're going to be salt and light in the city of Yukon is just simple maturity. And this scribe is a picture of what it looks like to grow up. So I just want to take you really fast through a couple of things about this scribe, and then we're going to talk about the great commandment. 
that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength. So three things about this scribe. Let me point them out to you. And you'll probably find some of them offensive, so you should totally email j9 at frontlinechurch.tv, and Jeff will help you with that. Jeff is a very gracious and compassionate man. So here we go. Three, three things about this scribe that I think are really helpful and, and three things about this scribe that are a reminder that God's word is really transcultural, that it was powerful and relevant and timely 2,000 years ago. It is today. And if Jesus doesn't come back, it will be in 2,000 years. So three things. Number one, here's what we see. This scribe is curious. He's not closed off. He's curious. He's not closed off. Look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of them all? I love this. Because if you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, here's what we've seen. All of the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, all of the ones that had memorized entire books of the Bible, all of the ones that were responsible to shepherd Israel, to oversee the sacrifices, to lead the people of God in worship, they're encountering Jesus who's teaching and doing signs and wonders with a kind of authority that no one's ever had in the history of the world. They've seen him preach with authority and people that are untrained know that Jesus has authority. They've seen Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons and speak words and cause the winds and the waves to obey him. And yet throughout this entire gospel, in the midst of all of Jesus and his profound power, and the way that he's different than anybody that's ever lived, there's not one moment in the gospel up to now where any of the leaders are genuinely curious about Jesus. And I've always find that mind-blowing. Like, even if you disagree with Jesus, even if you find Jesus offensive, even if you don't like the things he's saying, if you had an opportunity to sit down with a guy that literally laid hands on someone who could not walk and now they could walk, would you not want to ask him questions? If you were with a guy, if you were with a guy that spoke words and people that were oppressed by demons were all of a sudden, for the first time in their life, clothed and in their right minds, would you not want to have a conversation with him with real questions? And what's crazy is that the religious leaders, they ask Jesus questions, but they only ask him questions to trap him, to manipulate him, and to try to have an aha moment where they want to prove that they know more than him. And now we have this leader that hears Jesus disputing with the scribes, and he has a genuine question. He's really curious. He really wants to learn from Jesus. And I just want us to pause here and say, like, there is no such thing as ongoing growth and maturity if there's not genuine curiosity to continue to grow. Like if you had a good grandparent, they probably told you at some point that you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should listen twice as much as we talk. But like, let's acknowledge, and, and by the way, like let's not just turn this into a moment where we point the finger at all the people that we're outraged at that are not us. Like let's just acknowledge that in 2022, we've created a culture in the last 10 years of America where everybody wants to have a hot take, everybody wants to be heard, everybody's trying to raise their voice, but there's so little genuine teachability and curiosity that we're stunted in our growth. And I just want to say that like, we are called, if we're going to grow, to ask more questions than we talk and to listen more than we speak, to tweet less and to read more, to scroll less 
with the voices that already agree with your platform or your hot take and to open more Bible pages that are gonna actually at times offend you and confront you. This scribe is a great picture of the kind of curiosity that says, hey, you know what? I'm not fully formed. I don't know everything. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And curiosity leads to growth and maturity. Now, I'm not advocating for the kind of open-mindedness that G.K. Chesterton described when he said, don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. I'm not saying that we lose discernment or that we treat all ideals as equal, but I'm saying that there is such a thing as objective truth and it's outside of us. And that means we need to listen and be curious and be hungry. Second thing, real fast, in addition to being curious, not closed off, this scribe is a picture of a man who's responsible, not tribal. He's responsible, not tribal. He's a part of a community. He's one of the scribes. And it's not bad to be a part of a community. There's nothing wrong with being a part of the local church. You should be a part of a local church. There's nothing wrong with having a political party that you're a part of. That's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with being a part of various groups and partnerships. There's nothing inherently evil with any of that. But here's what's interesting about this scribe. This scribe is a part of a religious community. And that entire religious community is practicing a sort of group think around Jesus where they've already decided that Jesus is a false teacher, that he's a heretic, that he's a threat to the religious order, that he's teaching stuff that's not true, that he's anti the law of Moses, and that he's dangerous. And what's amazing about this scribe is that he's a part of that community, but he models for us in asking Jesus a genuine question, a recognition that he stands before God as one who will give an account for his life, for his choices, for his affections, for what he does with his time and his talent and his treasure. He actually recognizes that being a part of the group is not cover for being caught up in the group, but then instead, one of the things that makes us image bearers of God is that all of us on the great day will stand before God and give an account for our lives. So track with me, like, it's good to think through your family of origin and the ways that that's affected you and the way that you're shaped by your mom and dad and your siblings and to even do some work. And if you're like me and you came from a pretty banged up family to probably have to get some counseling and some help as you process it. But what this guy's modeling for us is that we can't then take the next step and just blame all of our choices and all of our ways of living on our family of origin. And that when you stand before God on the great day, you can't, you can't just say, hey, the places where I believe things that were not true about you or did things that were offensive to you, I just blame my political party. It's their fault. Or I just blame my local church. They didn't teach me the right thing. We are responsible before God. So track with me. I, I want you to really see this picture. Like, here's a really unhealthy way of being part of groups. You don't know where you end and the group begins right, and your favorite blogger or your political party or even your community group, whatever they say, whatever they feel controls what you think and controls what you feel, and you're just sort of caught up and enmeshed in all that nonsense and drama. That's not healthy. Here's a good way to be a part of a group. I am responsible for before God to seek truth and wisdom, and I'm going to engage my church and my friends and various teachers and the political process and the people that I work with as one who can be a part and grow and connect, but also as one that gets to stand before God and give an account for my life. Are you guys with me? Like he is 
responsible. He's not tribal. And then the last thing, and then we'll dive into the meat of the text. The last thing I want to point out is that he's reflective. He's not outraged. He's reflective. He's not outraged. And, and in a moment of outrage culture, which is ubiquitous, man, it's on the left, it's on the right, it's men, it's women, it's the young, it's the old. We are all so flipping outraged about everything. We're, we're furious about everything. We're mad about everything. In the midst of outrage culture, here's what we see in this scribe. He has a total opportunity to get outraged with Jesus because here's what Jesus says. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And that actually coming from Jesus was a profound compliment. Jesus is saying, you're close to me and I'm the entrance into the kingdom of God. You're asking questions of me and I'm the embodiment of the kingdom of God. But for a scribe to hear that, he could easily be amazingly offended because he was the religious elite. This guy knew entire books of the Bible by heart. And this was the perfect opportunity for him to look at Jesus and say, how dare you say that I'm not far from the kingdom of God when I'm a shepherd in Israel. I'm a teacher, I'm a theologian, I'm a scribe. I'm in the dead center of the kingdom of God. Are you crazy? But instead, here's what it tells us. Jesus says that and then this guy and the other scribes, they shut their mouths and are silent. And you get the impression in the text that the other scribes, they shut their mouths because they know that they can't contend with Jesus but you get the impression from this guy that he shuts his mouth because he knows that what Jesus just said demands thought and reflection and prayer. Okay, let, let me just say something. In the last decade of being one of the pastors of our church, here's one of the biggest shifts in emotional and relational immaturity among the people of God. We can't get coached. We can't be criticized. We can't be corrected. We can't be rebuked. And when people come to us with real concerns, with blind spots, the knee-jerk reaction is to be outraged, to be furious, to point our fingers, to shift blame. And, and here's all I'm trying to say is like, all criticism's not valid. All coaching's not valid. All rebuke is not valid. But here's the thing we gotta recognize as finite human beings who are sinful and broken, if you're not open and reflective, and instead you just go to reactive outrage when people tell you hard things, here's what you're guaranteeing. You're guaranteeing that you're gonna be completely infantile in the walk with Jesus in 10 years and then in 20 years. You are dooming yourself to a life of infancy with Jesus if you can't hear hard things from God's word and hard things from God's people. Now, it doesn't mean that everything's true. It doesn't mean that you just sort of let everybody vote on what's real in your life. But we gotta reflect, we gotta pray, we gotta get with God. We gotta shut our mouths and say, hey man, will you please open my eyes to what is true in this moment and what I need to hear in this moment. So, hey, that's all for free, not the sermon. Now let's move to the sermon. All right, Jesus, this is gonna be really quick. Jesus is gonna have a conversation with this scribe about the balsamic reduction of the law and the prophets. Does anybody else like a balsamic reduction? completely delicious in every way, unless you overcook it like I always do and it becomes like road tar. But here's what Jesus is doing. There was this debate in Jesus's day among the rabbis as to how do you sort of sum up the law of God? And if you're new to church or if you're not a Christian, the law of God is speaking about all the Old Testament commands of God, the teachings of God. 
And here's what we find is that there's all kinds of nuance. There's all kinds of complexity to the teachings in the Old Testament. Um, at this particular point in history, the scribes described like 600 and something different commands of God that they were trying to wrestle with. And so the debate of a lot of the teachers was like, how do we understand and how do we teach the law of God in a way that's comprehensive, but not completely overwhelming? There was one rabbi named Hillel. He used to talk about how can you sum up the law on one leg? Meaning like, if you don't have 47 hours to do an intensive master's degree workshop on the law of God, how do you teach it to your kids? How do you understand it? And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's giving us the very essence of the law, the heart of the law so that we can understand it. Now, even that, it's still confusing. And this is something that you need to know if you're trying to figure out if you're going to be a Christian or if you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time. There has been gallons of ink spilled in the last 2,000 years about followers of Jesus and our relationship with the Old Testament. And it's really confusing sometimes, is it? Like, if you're going to follow Jesus, what does the law mean for us? Does it mean anything for us? What's our relationship with the Ten Commandments? Or even more complicated, what's our relationship with a book like Leviticus? I had a friend who was not a follower of Jesus, and he wanted to explore the claims of Christ. And for some reason, he chose the, the book of Leviticus as his first time to sit down with the Bible. And, and you know, like intellectually, I'm like, hey, that's, that is the Bible. But on an emotional level, I'm like, oh, don't start there. Like, it's terrifying and weird and confusing. And so there's tons of questions about the law. Like, how do we relate to the law? And what does the law mean? And is there a difference between the ceremonial law, the cleansing and the washings and the rules about blood and dead things? Is there a difference between that and the civil laws of Israel, the commands towards Israel as a nation for how they should relate to one another and relate to God? And is there a difference between the first two kinds of law and the third kind, which would just be like moral laws that are timeless and binding on all human beings? And so it gets really complicated and really confusing. So before we dive into what Jesus says, let me just try to give you like a condensed overview of the best of Protestant teaching about the law for the last 2,000 years. This is overview, not comprehensive, but I think it'll be helpful. Here's what we need to understand about the law, at least three things. Number one, the law helps us to understand the character of God. So think of it as a telescope. When we read the law of God, in some way, those commands and rules are helping us to get a sense of the character of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the faithfulness of God, God's care for people, God's care for creation, God's care for fidelity. And so in some ways, the law helps us to get a glimpse of God. The second thing the law does is it helps us to get a glimpse of ourselves. So if the law is like a telescope to help us see God, it's also a bit of a magnifying glass or a microscope to help us see what's broken in us. So let's talk about the Ten Commandments for just a second. Um, the Ten Commandments, you, you, if you were raised in the church and you went to like a vacation Bible school, you, like me, probably heard someone describe the Ten Commandments as kind of like God's varsity dream for ultimate humanity. Like, this is God's standard. This is what it looks like to be beautiful, faithful people. Okay, let, let me give you a different perspective on the Ten Commandments. What if the Ten Commandments is just the lowest possible bar to live on a street that's not terrible? What if the Ten Commandments is just the lower, lowest possible bar to not live in the movie The Purge? Like, like, it's not varsity humanity. It's don't kill each other. 
right? Don't take stuff that's not yours. Don't steal somebody's spouse. The Ten Commandments is not varsity humanity. It's just basically remedial. This is the bare minimum standard to live in a city that's not awful. And here's what we know about it. Even the parts of the law that we get really prideful about, like, like even the ways in which I want to boast, I've never killed anybody. Jesus shows up and then he flips it upside down and takes us to the heart of it. And he says, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder against him. Whoa. Or we congratulate ourselves if we haven't committed adultery. I'm so glad I haven't committed adultery. And then Jesus gets us to the heart of the law and he says, if you've lusted for a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery against her. So here's what we see is that the law of God gives us this glimpse of what God's like, his perfection and his holiness. But then it gives us this really uncomfortable glimpse into what we're like that we can't even keep the bare basic minimum standard that we're in trouble. That's why Paul tells us that the law is the tutor to lead us to Jesus. The law is designed so that we would throw up our hands and say, oh my gosh, I need a savior because I can't even do the basics of remedial humanity before God. And then the law has a third use. And the third part of the law is that after we're born again by God's grace, the law helps us wrestle with what God's will looks like. How do we follow God with our time and our talent and our treasure and our relationships? How do we honor God? So with that in mind, let's dive into our text. And I want us to look at what Jesus says, and I want to show you three quick things about it. Three quick things. Verse 28, one of the scribes came up and he heard him disputing with one another And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let me give you just a few things to think about. First of all, the great commandment reveals God's beauty and worth. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you get a glimpse of God as he really is, his beauty and his holiness, his value, his worth, the splendor of God, the glory of God, which just describes the weightiness of who he is, if you see God the way he really is, then that demands from you a whole person integrated response of worship. Heart speaks of the realm of relationship. That's desire and affection and delight. The heart is the place of passion. The heart is a place of deep relational connection and joy. The mind is the place of intellectual truth, the place of wrestling and thinking and right understanding. The heart, the mind, and then the soul leads us to the place of meaning. Like, soul is hard to wrap our minds around, but here's how the old philosophers used to talk about humanity. They used to talk about our telos, which is the idea of the end for which we were created. Um, Wendell Berry asked the question, what are people for? Soul is the place of meaning, the place of purpose. Like, why are you here? What are you living for? What's the direction of your life pointing at? What's the most important thing to you? Jesus is saying that God is so beautiful and worthy. He's worthy of your heart, relationality and affection and desire and delight. He's worthy of your mind, thinking and right understanding and seeing him correctly. He's worthy of your soul, having your life lined up, being about him and your 
your essence, your identity, your purpose being found in him. And then it's worthy of your action. You're worthy of your action. That Action would be the realm of activity. Action, behavior, habit, formation, what we do with our time and our talent and our treasure and our words. Okay, here's what you gotta see is that Jesus is describing a whole life response to the value and beauty of God. He's worthy of your heart because God's relational. God is not cold mathematics. God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the whole purpose for which he created humanity was love, that he would share his love with us. And the whole point of redemption is not some weird calculation for God to do PR, but it's because he loved us that he sent his son for us. And when you see that love, it's worthy of actually having your affections warm towards God. God is worthy of thinking deeply and rightly about. All truth belongs to God. All truth is his. If you're into science, man, understanding the created world, mathematics, the way that human beings are made, medicine, all of those things find their genesis in the reality that God is true and all truth is his and that truth is beautiful, that he's worthy of thinking rightly about it, right? The soul, God is worthy as your creator, the one who created you for himself. He's worthy of you finding your purpose in him, not the stuff that he's made. An action, like listen, God who loves the world and who cares about your body is worthy of us worshiping him with our calluses, with our words, with our sweat, with our blood. And here's what we find is that most of, most of our attempts at worshiping God are disintegrated. At best, we try to hit a couple of these things. Many of you guys were raised in churches that tried to worship God with their minds but no heart. So there was good doctrine, there was creed, there was teaching, but there was no affection. Like the number of Sundays where I've sung these lyrics with you guys about God's beauty and his worth and the sending of his son and his grace. And I've said these words that are true and I've believed these words with my head and my heart hasn't been moved at all is so sad. He's worthy of your head and your heart. There's ways in which we try to worship God with our souls, but not our action. We say, hey man, Life is about God. My purpose is God. Um, He's the reason that I'm created. I'm living for God. But then that's disconnected from our sexuality or our relationships or our finances or the way that we go to work every single day of the week and work really hard as an act of worship. What Jesus is saying is that if you see the beauty of God, here's what you're going to find. He is so infinitely worthy and good, it demands an all-of-life response from us. This leads to the second thing, though, and this is the big problem. The great commandment reveals just how far we fall short. Like, has anybody in this room ever worshiped God with the totality of your being for even five minutes? No, man. We fall short in every category. We don't love God with all of our heart. We don't love him with all of our mind. We don't think rightly about him. We don't love God with all of our soul. We certainly don't love God with all of our actions. Like we never love God the way that God is worthy of being loved. And the point of the gospel, this is the good news of Jesus, is that Jesus perfectly fulfills the law on our behalf. Jesus comes to love the Father, to worship the Father in the way that human beings were created to do so and in the ways in which we've failed to do so. Jesus, did he love the Father with all of his heart? 100%. Like, Jesus delighted in the Father. His food was to be with the Father. 
Jesus loved the Father with all of his mind. Jesus thought deeply about the Father and abided in the word of his Father and said that he lived on the word of his Father. He memorized the word of his Father and he rebuked Satan with the word of his Father. Jesus loved God with his mind. Jesus' purpose or his soul was connected to the glory of his father. He said that he came for this purpose, to do the will of him who sent him. Jesus wasn't living for career or success or pleasure or money or getting married or kids or vacation. Jesus lived with the father as his end, as his purpose, as his destination. And did anybody ever worship the father with their strength like Jesus? No, like Jesus did callous his hands in worship. He bent his back in worship. In the Garden of Gethsemane, his blood flowed like sweat in worship. He poured out the last measure of his strength on the cross. There's never been anybody that worshiped with their strength like Jesus. And here's what we see, and this is really good news. You need to get this. The great commandment is showing us what God's worthy of, what he demands, what we fall short of, and what Jesus fulfills. And through the death of Jesus in our place and through the resurrection of Jesus, here's what's true of us now. The accuser could come into the presence of God and say about you, she doesn't, she doesn't love you with all of her heart. And the father could rightly say, obviously, I know that. I know her inside and out. She doesn't love me with all of her heart, but my son did, and he lives to make intercession for her. The father could hear the accuser come to him and talk about you and say, hey, he doesn't love you with all of his mind. He doesn't think rightly about you. He's got all kinds of weird stuff he's made up. He's created you to be a God that conforms to his biases and he leaves out whole passages of scripture. And the father could say, I know, I know. I'm pursuing him on those issues. (laughs) But even where he falls short with loving me with his mind, my son Jesus never did and Jesus lives to make intercession for him. Christ fulfills the law completely on our behalf. And this doesn't leave us then to kind of throw up our hands and say, well, praise be to God for grace. There's just no hope of us ever growing to love God the way that God should rightly be loved. Instead, this leads us to the last thing. The great commandment, the great commandment helps set our kingdom priorities. What's it look like to grow in grace? What's it look like through the blood of Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Spirit and with the help of God's word and with the help of community to be a little bit more like Jesus in 12 months than today? Well, you could talk about a lot of things, but the great commandment, again, is an amazing reduction of what that would look like. What does it look like to love God a little bit more in 12 months? It means that a little bit more of our heads and our hearts and our souls and our strengths are connected in offering him adoration and obedience and presence. And that we're offering one another, not just vertical in our relationship with the Father, but the Son reconciles us to one another, to love one another as we love ourselves. So here's here's the big idea. The big idea is that you and me were made for God, 100%. Our very purpose is in him. St. Augustine said that You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and we're restless until we find our rest in you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is just a question and answer to form Christians, starts with the first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. What is the essence of those two statements? 
It's that God is worthy of the totality of who we are. And we fall short of offering him that, but Jesus did. And by faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins, but we're also invited into a slow process of offering more and more of our life to God, our heads and our hearts and our souls and our strength. And to not disconnect that from each other because James tells us if anybody says that they love God but they hate their neighbor, they're a liar and the truth isn't in them. Growth and love for God will lead to growth and love for each other. My prayer for us as a church is that we would grow in that kind of maturity, that we would grow in that kind of depth, and that we would begin to name the places where we're leaving God out of the equation. Um, before I pray for you, there's a, there's a Roman Catholic author who wrote a book on spiritual formation that I read years ago. And he used this picture that was really helpful. He, he talked about our lives being like a mansion with tons of different rooms. And God the Father comes to us and he offers to purchase the whole mansion with the blood of Jesus. And we begin to negotiate with him. And eventually we land on what percentage of the mansion we're willing to sell him. Usually it's maybe a half or maybe a third. We keep this portion over here for ourselves to kind of block him out. We say, all right, you can have that part of my life, but I'm going to keep this over here. And the father's really faithful. He's really patient. He keeps talking to us. He keeps saying, hey, I don't want to rent. I want to own. And I want that wing that you're keeping for yourself. Those doors that you have locked and bolted and the windows shut that are just stale and full of your secrets and the skeletons in your closet. Give me that room too. I really want that room. The Father's patient to keep asking, keep pursuing. And growth and sanctification is just simply unlocking more doors slowly, realizing that like the part of the mansion we've given him already is way better off because he's the Lord of it. And we keep responding to his invitation by slowly but surely unlocking more and more of the totality of our being. This is what it looks like to worship God with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. What are the places that you're locking him out of? Is it your intellectual life? Is it your affections? Is it your career, or your family, or your anxiety for your kids, or your sexuality, or your money, or your time, or your escapes? Like, the invitation of your father today is to believe and to see that in Jesus, there's a way for you to open up more of your life to be who you're actually created to be, which is a full a full-hearted, thoughtful, full of purpose, active worshiper of the living, of God, living God with everything you've got. So Father, I just thank you that where we fall short, Jesus does not. Thank you that where we haven't offered you what you're worthy of, Jesus has. And today we stand in your presence, not boasting in our ability to get it right, but boasting in Jesus' ability that he did get it right. But we don't want to stop there as an excuse to not grow. We want to grow. We want the great commandment to shape the ambition of our lives. God, I want to worship you with more of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. So would you meet us today? Would you fill us? Would you feed us? Would you grow us?